Father, you're awesome. Your plan is perfect. Whenever we try to improve upon it, we end up realizing how foolish we are. We just want to surrender to you, follow you, see what you have in store. Right now, we're just asking you that as we praise you, as we seek you, that you would speak to us from your word, encourage us, challenge us. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Turn to Mark chapter 11. We're going to look at verses 27 through 33, page 576 in the Bibles that we give away. So if you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand. Someone will bring you one. It's our gift to you. We're going through the Gospel of Mark verse by verse. And we're going to answer the question, why are people not willing to follow Jesus? I want you to imagine this scenario. You live in a dystopic world. There is beauty, but it's surrounded with ugliness, sickness, and death. You find out that there is another world just beyond death that can either have all the beauty and none of the ugliness of this world or all of the ugliness with none of the beauty. If you surrender to the king who came into this world from the next one, in order to sacrifice his own life for yours, you gain the beautiful world, utopia. Why would anyone not take the beautiful world? Our passage actually gives three reasons. Let's look at it. Mark 11, verse 27. They came again to Jerusalem. As he was walking in the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came and asked him, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority to do these things? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, then answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was John's baptism from heaven or of human origin? Answer me. They discussed it among themselves. If we say from heaven, he will say, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, they were afraid of the crowd because everyone thought that John was truly a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. To follow Jesus in absolute surrender is the most delightful, suspense-fulfilled, incredible way to live, okay? It's true. When you surrender to Jesus, there's a peace that is amazing. There is a joy that we get to experience, and you, all the pressure's on God and no longer on you because you're simply following Jesus. It's amazing. That's God's design. But the religious leaders of Jesus' day completely missed it. And so are many in our day. Let me read from David McKenna's commentary. And he kind of sets the stage of what's going on in our passage. He calls it a subtle trap. Huddling together in a special meeting of the Sanhedrin, a rare coalition of chief priests, scribes, and elders 
comes together on a, on a common question that they will address to Jesus. Usually, they are at odds with each other because the chief priests are jealous of their power. The scribes pride themselves on their intellect, and the elders never let either group forget the sacredness of tradition. Only a common enemy can cause them to put aside their differences long enough to bring their collective wisdom together on a question that will trap Jesus and justify his arrest. Each faction has its special reason for hating him. He has exposed the unethical economic practices of the chief priests, embarrassed the scribes in debate, and repudiated the elders' position that the oral tradition equals God's law. All of this hate now focuses in one event, the cleansing of the temple. If Jesus gets away with this show of force in their sacred precincts, he can flaunt their authority at any time in any place. Still, the issue of raw power is too obvious. The question that they will ask him must be spiritualized. And so, they address him. They ask him this question. Three reasons why people are not willing to follow Jesus. The first one we see in verses 27 and 28. They do not want to submit to his authority. Notice, back again in our passage, they came again to Jerusalem. Remember, they are there visiting for Passover. They're there for the celebration. And they go in and out of the city each day waiting for the wonderful celebration. So they come back into Jerusalem. As he was walking in the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came and asked him, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority to do these things? We know that they do not want to submit to his authority. Another commentator, Daniel Akins, uh, explains He says, this man teaches with authority, casts out demons with authority, and heals with authority. He does what only God can do. But they request his ordination papers. (laughs) They are not motivated by a willingness to know who he is, and they have no interest in bringing their lives under his authority. Their goal is to ensnare him, embarrass him, and discredit him. If he admits he has no religious credentials and that he is acting on his own authority, he will probably lose the respect and following of the people and they can be finished with this troublemaker. On the other hand, if he makes a claim to divine authority, then they could charge him with blasphemy, arrest him, and start the process for his destruction. Either way, this hick from the sticks would be finished. And so that's their thoughts. They have no plans of submitting to his authority. We need to understand that every single human being has a final source of authority. All of us have actually one of three different possibilities that you choose to use to make ultimate decisions in life. Three sources of final authority. Most people choose themselves. I am my final authority. Now, That's actually not the best final authority that we could come up with simply because all of us are finite. We are small. We don't know everything. We change our minds. But we're also sinful. 
We have hearts that are corrupt. We change and twist things. If we're the final source of authority, we're sunk. So others decide to choose tradition. They say, my tradition, this is what I go by for choosing what is right and what is wrong, what is true and what is false. And so they go by with traditions. But the problem with traditions is sometimes the traditions end up being wrong, right? In fact, all cultures have both good and bad in them, don't they? There is no perfect culture. Because tradition is simply made up of a bunch of selves that we've already determined are finite and sinful. And so that's also not a good final authority. Those can be helpful in our understanding of trying to decide what's right and what's wrong. But unless God has spoken in such a way that we can absolutely trust what he says, then we're sunk. But that's the final source, revelation, that God has spoken in his word. It's such a way that is without error that we can know this is God speaking, and so therefore God is the final authority. And he's not finite, he's infinite, and he's not sinful, he's good and holy. They reject this. You see, when you look at these three groups, you have the chief priests, you have the scribes, and you have the elders. Once again, they most of the time, fought with each other, but they've gotten together because they have a common enemy, Jesus. And we see these people, they all have either embraced self or tradition. The chief priests were actually Sadducees. The Sadducee was a sect of Judaism that had kind of cuddled up to the Romans. They liked the power they had because they were in control of the sacrificial system that everybody needed. And so they were buddy buddies with the Romans and had fall, fallen into that sort. They also had all kinds of beliefs that were different than the rest of the Jews. For instance, uh, we, we know that they only embraced the first five books of the Bible, of the Old Testament. They didn't embrace the rest of it. And even that book, they had distorted and twisted in some of their beliefs. They even refused to believe that there was life after, the, after death, which is why they were very sad, you see. So we have the chief priests who were Sadducees, and they had truncated the Bible. The scribes, on the other hand, were mostly Pharisees who had added tradition and embraced legalism. The legalism especially, this is their downfall. I want you to look at Romans chapter 9, verses 30 through 33. I don't have it written down in my uh, PowerPoint. Sorry about that. Romans chapter 9. Here we see Paul is addressing the Gentiles and the Jews and why, did the, why the Jews ended up rejecting Jesus. Look at what it says, verse 30. What should we say then? Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained righteousness, namely the righteousness that comes from faith. Notice here, they're not going by their own righteousness because the Gentiles recognized they were sinners. They didn't have enough righteousness because the righteousness necessary is perfect righteousness, and they knew they weren't perfect. So they couldn't come to him with that, but they had embraced the gospel of faith, faith in Christ. 
So a faith that brought about God's righteousness, which is perfect righteousness, declared to their account. So he says, that's the Gentiles, but Israel pursuing the law of righteousness has not achieved the righteousness of the law. Why is that? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as it were, by works. They should have known. Abraham, remember, was counted righteous because of his faith not his works. They should have known that, but they missed it. It says they stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, look, I'm putting a stone in Zion to stumble over and a rock to trip over, and the one who believes on him will not be put to shame. They stumbled over Jesus. So they missed it because of their legalism, righteousness by their own good works. Now in the church today, we have a new group coming in. Uh, if you've heard of N.T. Wright and James Dunn, they've infiltrated a new form of Phariseeism into evangelicalism. They actually say that you're justified initially by your faith, but you're ultimately justified by your works. That's what they teach. It's a new form of Phariseeism. It's works righteousness getting snunk in. It is legalism. Sadly. Another form, liberalism, and I'm speaking of theological liberalism, of the 19th and 20th centuries have snuck in, and they say the Bible has full, is full of errors, that the Bible is incorrect, and so we have to go by our great intellect or our incredible feelings. Self being the final authority. But notice both groups, they're rejecting the word of God. And that's what we see with these groups here, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. Pride and self-sufficiency hinder surrender. Surrender to the king. That's what he calls us to. It's freeing. It's wonderful. But they refuse that because of pride and self-sufficiency. That self-sufficiency is pride, isn't it? Once again, the insidious nature of the human potential movement has infiltrated even the church. The human potential movement, the idea that you just need to look within, that there's something great inside of you, and you can accomplish anything if you do that. That is not true, and it's a lie from Satan. We need God. Surrender to the king. The whole self-help movement. Uh, you see it in the bookstores. In fact, this guy walked into a bookstore and he asked the attendant, he said, uh, where's the self-help book section? And the attendant said, well, if I told you, wouldn't that defeat the purpose? <laughs> no, we need God. Robert Schuller of old and now Joel Olstein have introduced an evangelical form of this human potential movement, but we need to be aware. The church growth movement itself helped this idea become popular, opening the door for heresy. Pride and self-sufficiency hinder surrender to, to God and to his word. But surrender... To Jesus is the most freeing thing you could experience. When you surrender to him, he's the Lord. 
and you simply follow. And it's amazing because you never know where he's going to lead you. As you're digging into his word and as you're being led by the Holy Spirit, the next day and the next day, it's always amazing. And you know you can trust in him that he'll hold you up. He'll never let you down, as the song says. So you surrender. Why won't people do that? It's amazing. It's incredible. It is what God is calling us to. I was reminded of John Wimber. You know, he's, he was a guy, he's dead now, but he was a guy who, who believed that God sometimes healed and sometimes he didn't heal. And so, and he saw incredible miracles take place, which was amazing, which was wonderful, right? But he talked of how God made a deal with him. As if he just surrendered to God, he said, God says, if you promise not to take credit when I do heal, I'll promise you don't have to take the blame when I don't. That's, I mean, that's freeing, isn't it? We surrender to the king. But they do not want to submit to his authority, and that's the first reason why people are not willing to follow Jesus. Second, Verses 29 through 31, we see that they refuse to honestly examine the evidence. Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, then answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was John's baptism from heaven or of human origin? Answer me. They discussed among themselves, if we say from heaven, he will say, then why didn't you believe him? They refuse to honestly examine the evidence. By the way, with Jesus here, he's asking this question. This is a common first century rabbinical uh, debating technique. They would answer a question with a question. Okay? And that's what he's doing here. So we see this taking place. But notice the brilliance of Jesus. He did have a purpose in the question that he asks. Let me read again from Achan who explains this. He says, Jesus' question is pure genius. He's not being evasive. His argument is basically this. My claim to authority is based on this possibility of a divine authoritative ministry given directly by God without human endorsement. John the Baptist is a perfect example universally affirmed by the people. Now, if you are unwilling to grant my premise and accept the evidence I have put before you, then we are at an impasse, and we have nothing further to talk about. If you cannot judge the ministry of John based on the evidence, then you are not qualified to judge me either. Your willful blindness condemns you. He brings up John the Baptist. Everyone knew John the Baptist was a prophet, but they did not believe it. They had already rejected John the Baptist, but too afraid to say so. So they've already rejected not only John the Baptist, who brought in incredible evidence, but Jesus himself, who performed miracles, who cast out demons in their presence, and they refused to follow the evidence. They refused to honestly examine it. But there was and is evidence beyond a reasonable doubt that was displayed then and is still displayed today. Evidence beyond a reasonable doubt. We see this in the life of Jesus. Incredible evidence. Did you know that there is more evidence 
for the existence of Jesus and the fact that he did perform miracles and that he was crucified under Pontius Pilate and three days later his body was missing because he rose from the dead, there's more evidence for that than there is of Julius Caesar. Now, how many here believe that there was a Julius Caesar? Far less evidence, not even close the amount of evidence for Julius Caesar that there was and is for Jesus Christ. Evidence beyond reasonable doubt. But something happened in the 18th century especially. David Hume comes along and he expresses his philosophy. Uh, and with that, he brought people to begin to doubt. His skepticism was already answered by the Scottish common sense realism of others, uh, already answered, but the poison infiltrated anyway, and it's still here today. There is a spiritual battle going on, especially among our young people, a spiritual battle that's drawing them into doubt, to not even look at the evidence any longer, to fall away, apostasy. And that's exactly what we see with these chief priests, scribes, and elders refusing to honestly examine the evidence. That spiritual uh, battle that's raging against our kids, it needs to be answered. People do need the truth. We don't want to just check our brains in at the door. We do need to show them evidence, but we also need to show them love. It has to be truth and love. It has to be word and spirit. That as they dig into the word, they also experience the amazing and empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. And those two together can draw them back. I believe the prodigals are going to come home. And God is drawing them even now. That's why I wrote my book, Beyond a Reasonable Doubt. Because it's a little small thing that I pray God will use to draw people back to examine, to be at least willing to honestly examine the evidence and experience the power of the Holy Spirit as well. But the reason why we reject it is our corrupt hearts. Jeremiah 17, 9 very clearly states that the heart is desperately wicked and deceitful beyond uh, reason, beyond uh, 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 I forget the exact words, but uh, deceitful and uh, and, and beyond, yes, you got it. There you go. We could read the passage. And uh, the heart's bad. <laughs> Corrupt heart. Who can understand it, he says. That's the problem. You see, the solution is when we realize that and admit it. That's surrender. We say, that does describe me. That's the first step towards recovery, but not these guys. And then the third reason, they fear men more than they fear God. Verses 32 and 33. But if we say of human origin, they were afraid of the crowd because everyone thought that John was truly a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. We don't know. Yes, they did. They did not believe in John the Baptist. 
but they feared men more than they feared God. Uh, Daniel Aiken, in his commentary, he gives a list of, uh, actually there was a uh, poll taken, a Gallup poll on uh, what people are afraid of, okay? And the number one fear was actually snakes, okay? 51% said they feared snakes above all else, okay? Snakes. <laughs> That's the number one fear. Then public speaking, heights, being enclosed in small spaces, spiders and insects, needles or shots, mice, <laughs> and flying, okay? In this text, uh, God's word addresses a fear that is common to all people, the fear of man. Proverbs 29, 25 says, the fear of man is a snare, but the one who trusts in the Lord is protected. Fearing what other people will think. If I come out and say I'm willing to totally surrender to Jesus, people are gonna look down on me. They're gonna think badly of me. The fear of man. I want you to notice, though, in the list, there was one thing that was not mentioned at all, and that's the fear of God. And that should be the top. It should be the only fear. God isn't on the list, but look at Proverbs chapter 9 verse 10. It says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge. The knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That means if you don't have the fear of the Lord, you're completely without spiritual wisdom. Spiritually stupid, basically, is what it's saying. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of of wisdom. Chapter 8, verse 13, it says, To fear the Lord is to hate evil. I hate arrogant pride, evil conduct, and perverse speech. So the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. In chapter 16, verse 6, it says, One turns from evil by the fear of the Lord. When we have that fear of the Lord, look at Isaiah 8, 13. By the way, if I had all the verses on the fear of the Lord, we would be here all day. So we're just picking a few of them. Look at Isaiah 8, verse 13. It says, you are to regard only the Lord of armies as holy. Only he should be feared. Only he should be held in awe. Fear God and nothing else. That's what he's calling us to. Nothing else. Look at Luke chapter 2, in this season of, uh, that we're uh, remembering the, at Christmas, the, coming of, the first coming of the Lord as a baby. Uh, in Luke chapters 1 and chapter 2, it describes the Christmas story. And in chapter 2, verses 33 through 35, we see the result here. It says, his father and mother were amazed at what was being said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and told his mother, Mary, indeed, this child is destined to cause the fall and rise of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be opposed. And a sword will pierce your own soul that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. That he did not come bringing peace. He came to bring division. That this is going to happen. Some are going to embrace him and experience incredible peace. 
and joy that is available in forgiveness. And others are going to oppose him. And a sword will pierce Mary's own soul in light of that. We choose to follow him or we choose to fear humans and follow the crowds. The fear of God is the experience of awe, respect, and humble obedience of the finite, that's us, towards the infinite. So the fear of God is different than being afraid. To be afraid when you're afraid of, say, snakes, you back away. But the fear of the Lord, though you're in awe of God, you draw near to God. It's the proper response of the creation to the creator. There's an awe, there's a sense of respect and humble obedience of the finite towards the infinite. We shudder in awe in his presence and we're genuinely afraid to disobey him. The fear of God is the proper response of the creation to the creator. A wonderful little book called The Idea of the Holy by Rudolf Otto. He wrote this at the beginning of the 20th century. And he's talking about the fear of God. He calls it uh, the numinous in one place. And then he describes it. He says, uh, I propose to call it creature consciousness or creature feeling. It is the emotion of a creature submerged and overwhelmed by its own nothingness in contrast to that which is supreme above all creatures. Creature consciousness, I am not the creator. I am his creation. And so therefore, the proper response is the fear of the Lord. But so many today, they sing Frank Sinatra's song. I did it my way. When I was preparing this, I thought of that song, and I remembered a, a funeral I did uh, a while back. And uh, Sharon Schreifel's brother, he had actually, he was in the hospital dying, and he called and asked, he, he asked for me to come and talk to him. I'd never met him before, so I thought that was interesting, but uh, uh, so I said, sure. Well, that was when I hurt my back. Remember when I hurt my back? And I, I literally, I had to crawl on the floor. Elizabeth helped me get in the car. We get to the hospital. She gets a, a uh, wheelchair out and, I, and puts me in the wheelchair. So it looks like I'm the one that's supposed to be in the hospital, not this guy. We go to his room. His whole family's there. And we, uh, we're, we're there. We start talking a little bit. And they're all talking about this and that and the other. And I just said, let's just go talk to him. So we went and talked to him. And he wanted, he just asked, I, I need to know about salvation. I mean, he was literally asking, how can I be saved? His sister was a believer. And I think it was either another sister or cousin or something was also a believer. The rest of them weren't believers. And, uh, and so I shared the gospel with him. I told him, you need to repent of your sins. You have to place your faith in Christ and him alone for your salvation. You could be saved. And right then and there, he bowed his head in the midst of all the commotion, and he prayed to receive Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. And he was changed. His whole countenance was changed. There, it was just a, me, Elizabeth, uh, Sharon, the other lady, I can't remember if she's once again a sister or cousin or something like that. And he, we're all rejoicing. We're all just like, wow, 
God. The rest of them are like, oh, what's going on? What's going on here? And they were all still bickering, and they were actually upset because he wanted to be taken back to his home so he could at least die in his home instead of dying in the hospital. And I, I just said to him, why don't you just grant him this last wish? And so they did. They allowed him to go home, put a, one of those hospital beds in his home, but uh, the, the whole next week, all he wanted was for people to read him the Bible. And he prayed, and he, he truly had a change in his life. And then he died. But he had asked before he died that I would do his funeral. And so I, I did his funeral, and, and I usually, when I do a funeral, I let people you know, speak, you know, share what, their thoughts, uh, their memories of the person who's died, who died. And, and so many, a few different people at least had come up, and they all said the same thing, something similar like, yeah, he just did it his own way. He didn't care about other people. He just did it his own way. He was his own man, you know, all that, you know. He was an island and all that kind of stuff, you know. And then I said, well, let me just share. And I shared in my message. I said, you know, that was the way he was all of his life. But I want to share with you something happened a week ago when he bowed to pray and surrender to the king and reject that way of life. And he came to know Jesus. And now, right now, because of that, he's with the king. He's in total peace. And you can too if you surrender to the king instead of fearing man. The fear of the Lord. Our relationship with God is unlike any other relationship. We either fear people or we love them, but we don't typically love and fear the same person. We don't have that kind of relationship. It is a unique relationship with God because God is unique. He's both our Father and our God. And so we have this uh, unique relationship of both love and fear, okay? Because God is both imminent and transcendent. What does that mean? He's imminent. He is close. In fact, Jesus drew near to us. He became a human being. He drew near to us. He is close. And because of that, he's pouring out his love upon us. We love him back. The natural response to his imminence is love. But he's also transcendent. When it says Jesus was born as a baby, he still was Lord at thy birth. He was the creator. God himself, transcendent beyond us. We can't even fathom his greatness. He's other than us. And that transcendence, the proper response is the fear of the Lord. And so we see that God is calling us to this unique relationship of both love and fear. The fear of God must be coupled with the love of God. Charles Spurgeon said, fear without joy is torment, and joy without holy fear would be presumption. The fear of God is often synonymous with worship in the Old Testament. In fact, depending on your translation, if it's a very literal translation, in many places it will say, and they feared God. But the other translations, not so literal, will say, and they worshiped God. And both translations are good translations because that's what it meant in those contexts. They feared the Lord, they, meaning they worshiped the Lord in that holy sense of awe before him. 
Let me read from Charles Spurgeon's uh, incredible commentary, three volumes set on the Psalms. This is what he says concerning Psalm 96. Fear before him all the earth. Tremble is the word in the original, and it expresses the profoundest awe, just as the word worship does, which would be more accurately translated by bow down. Even the bodily frame would be moved to trembling and prostration if men were thoroughly conscious of the power and glory of Yahweh. Men of the world ridiculed the Quakers for trembling when under the power of the Holy Spirit had they been able to discern the majesty of the eternal, they would have quaked also. There is a sacred trembling which is quite consistent with joy. The heart may even quiver with an awful excess of delight. The sight of the king and his beauty caused no alarm to John and Patmos, and yet it made him fall at his feet as dead. Oh, to behold him and worship him with prostrate awe and sacred fear. But God today has become an old grandpa in many people's thoughts. He's just gone. He has to love us so we can just do whatever we want. No surrender to the king. The world is dystopic because of sin. God in his grace has come down to save us from our sin. And only pride, where we don't want to submit to God's authority, we won't honestly examine the evidence, and we lack the proper fear of God, that pride will lead us away from utopia. Utopia. 